I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff, a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. And I'm Matt Bernico. I teach media studies at Greenlee University in Greenville, Illinois. Uh, we've been talking about non-Marxist communism for a little while. Uh, so we've been through the Diggers and Thomas Munzer, these kind of like proto-communist figures. And then we did some episodes about the early church and communism of consumption and then last week we talked about Jose Miranda's communism in the Bible, and we weren't really planning on this, but it's kind of built up to a trajectory, I think, um, to this episode, where we can do sort of the opposite and talk about explicitly Marxist contributions to communism, and uh, maybe think a little bit about why Christians should care about that. Yeah, exactly. Seems like we gotta do it, you know? We spent so long talking about people who uh, don't know about Marx, so we gotta it's about uh, ramp time. it up. So... It's about time we got to it, to this world historic <laughs> event. Uh, that's, a, that's a Marxism <laughs> joke. Uh, so to do that, we read Eric Hobsbawm's book. Uh, well, it's like a book of essays, a collection of essays called How to Change the World. Uh, basically, this is a book that's just uh, full of history stuff. And it's kind of boring. It's fine. It's cool if you like Marx, and I do, so it was great. Um, we paid some special attention to some sections he wrote about the communisms that preceded Marx in Europe, like directly before Marx, not the ones we've been talking about for the last few weeks. Um, and uh, we also read a little bit about the history behind the Communist Manifesto, and there's a bunch of it. Uh, I've read the Communist Manifesto, you know, a gazillion times, Um but finding the history behind it was kind of cool. It made me think about some things in it a little bit differently. Yeah. Uh, Eric Osbaum is really interesting for a lot of reasons. He is probably the most famous Marxist historian in the English-speaking world, world probably ever. I think that's fair to say. Um, he's a British guy. He wrote a bunch of history books. Um, but he also was a communist himself. And that's a pretty big deal because he is pretty widely respected even outside of communist circles as a historian. So this book's really interesting because he's sort of reflecting on the history of a tradition that he is part of, both theoretically and politically. Uh, so hopefully we'll get some good stuff out of that. Um, and to set the stage a little bit, uh, we'll maybe start out with this word from Jose Miranda um, from last week. So we talked about this take where he said uh, this um, at the very beginning of the book. 
He says, for a Christian to say that he or she is anti-Marxist is understandable. There are numerous varieties of Marxism, and it's possible that our Christian is referring to one of the many materialistic philosophies which style themselves as Marxist without having much at all to do with Marx. But for a Christian to claim to be anti-communist is quite a different matter, and without doubt constitutes the greater scandal. So the point that he's trying to make there is that uh, there's a communism that's separate from Marx, and uh, you know you should separate Marxism from Marxists as well, or, or Karl Marx anyway, from Marxists. And I think that both of those things are true, uh, but also <laughs> there are some good reasons for Christians to not only not be afraid of Marxism, but maybe to even get into it uh, to be Marxist or at least think about Marxist philosophy a little more. Yeah, I think so. Um, last week, the sort of conclusion of our conversation was, um, well, uh, the communisms of consumption, as we've been calling them uh, because of Rosa Luxemburg, they are like not bad. In fact, they're good parts of the, our like Christian memory that we might want to recall more often than we do. Um, but um, Marxism is also good. So like, why not just have it all? Just take it. Take it all. Yeah. Uh, let's get into that in just a second. But before we do that, uh, we don't have any iTunes reviews, but we did both experience a pretty uh, historic artistic event this week. Um, the film Sorry to Bother You by Boots Riley. And we're not going to give any spoilers. It's very important. Uh, that you don't read any spoilers if you've managed to escape them already. Uh, do yourself a favor and don't don't go find them. Um, but uh, that being said, Matt, uh, hot take. What do you think? Sorry to bother you. A good communist movie by a real life actual communist. The best, the best communist movie. <laughs> the best movie just in general. It's so good. It is so good. Uh, it's super fun. It is uh, very funny and very critical and uh, does a lot of the work that I think Marx does in the movie. <laughs> uh, it's wild. I'll say that much. Um, uh, I took my doctoral advisor there who is like a lefty guy, a socialist, he would say, I think, but definitely not a communist. And uh, I still am not exactly sure what he made of it, um, but he was a good sport about it. So that's cool. Uh, my wife went. She was really into it um today she was texting me uh sorry to bother you gifts and complaining about her job so you know it's really working out i think i think the the movie has so many just like great <laughs> little just like pieces of i don't know uh marxist critique communist critique in it and uh you got to go see this movie can, can we just talk for like one second though how absolutely buck wild it is there's an actually like there's an actual communist movie that you can go to the movie theater and see <laughs> yeah it is insane like i paid like seven bucks and i got to see like a actual communist movie in a movie theater with like 10 other people i went like at two o'clock <laughs> this afternoon so there wasn't very weren't very many other people but you know you, you get it it's crazy yeah. crazy that, that could be a thing that happens in uh 2018 the year of our <laughs> lord that communist yeah, movie. Yeah, I love it. Uh, I also love, I feel like, probably, so the movie's very good, and people should go see it, uh, but the biggest thing I think that I'm appreciating about it is that it's giving Boots Riley a big platform, and he's going on a bunch of talk shows. Uh, he was on, like, CBS uh, talking about the movie, which is totally absurd to me and very cool, uh, and it's just insane um, that there's a communist talking about communism on CBS. Uh that's really great. Um, also, uh, he's he's had a really good Twitter presence. I mean, mostly he's just retweeting people who love his movie, and that's fine. Uh, but there's some really good, like, little um, 
comments he's made like someone was like this is the movie we need in the trump administration and he's like yeah but like also i read it under barack obama's administration so the material conditions haven't changed <laughs> so I, I really appreciate that perspective getting a little more play yeah for sure uh, i even heard him on npr a few weeks ago talking about the movie and uh i don't remember who was interviewing him it's one of the one of the famous npr types <laughs> And uh, they were, it was so funny to hear them try to articulate what the movie was about. And he was like, yeah, I mean, it's about capitalism being bad <laughs> and stuff. And they're just like, hmm, okay, but let's talk more about that white person <laughs> voice in the film. Like, you know, like really wanted to draw, like, draw on the scandal sort of of racism and play that up. While it's like a huge part of the movie and it's super important, but like it's also a movie that's yeah. anti-capitalist in an important way too. Right. They want to they wanna talk about one right. but not the other. And so it's a yeah, funny it thing. Um, also, uh Boots Riley is basically the reason I became a communist because I got a hold of a couple of albums when I was in an evangelical school and uh, just couldn't couldn't beat those fat beats, you know? No, man, they're good. So I appreciate that. Good personal connection. Anyway, if you haven't seen the movie, you should see it. If you haven't listened to The Coup, which is the rap outfit that Boots Riley is part of, you should do that. And uh, I'm going to go see it again. So spend money to help communists uh, pay their bills. Uh, Dean, do you remember, okay, this is a weird uh, callback, but maybe in your uh, past evangelical life, you'll remember this kind of thing happening. Uh, when the film Passion of the Christ mm-hmm. came out, it was like uh, a moral imperative for Christians everywhere <laughs> to go see it at the first, like when it opened. So it would make like huge, huge yeah, box yeah. office numbers. And uh, I remember when I was like, you know, I don't know, a teenager when that came out or whatever, I was like, man, that kind of seems like a weird <laughs> thing to do. I mean, it's a Christian movie about Jesus, but I feel like kind of weird about that, like trying to inflate the box office numbers. Like people should just go see it. But uh, in this one instance here, I think it's very good. Uh, get those box office numbers yeah. way up and make uh, people know that communism is very profitable, yeah. I guess. Under, I, I agree. Uh, yeah, the fact of the matter is Mel Gibson is a bad director and Booth Riley is a great director. And uh, sorry to bother you. It's it, just it different. Just yeah, it's the passion of the Christ for communists. So you've got to go see it. <laughs> the passion of the communists is what it should have been called. So. <laughs> bring your small group <laughs> take your pastor yeah that's right uh all right cool well we did it we did the free plug uh that's well deserved and now uh, let's talk about marks um so this book by eric Hobsbawm, how to change the world bad manual bad title for the book you're not going to learn how to change the world but you are going to learn about how marx wanted you to change the world uh you're going to learn about 30, 30 weird French and German guys who Marx did not like. That's what you're going to learn. Yeah, that's right. It is very dry reading, um, but really useful and interesting. And hopefully we'll pull out some of the stuff so that you don't have to slog through it if you don't want to uh, and still get all the good stuff. So uh, in the beginning, he opens the book with this essay called Marx Today. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, I think there's a lot to be said about it, uh, but... Probably one of the biggest things that struck me was uh, a fact that he sort of opens up with. Um, So he says, 70 years after Marx's death, one third of the human race lived under regimes ruled by communist parties, which claimed to represent his ideas and realize his aspirations. Well over 20% of people still do, though their ruling parties have, with minor exceptions, dramatically changed their policies. In short, if one thinker left a major indelible mark on the 20th century, it was he. Uh, so I think that is at least a good historical precedent for talking about what Marx actually thought, because um, while non-Marxist communists uh, do exist and non-Marxist communism does exist, uh, it was Marxist communism for sure that made, I think, a, 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 the biggest impression, inarguably, of any of those communist movements. 
So it's important for that reason. Uh, it's also the case, too, that just like um, Marx is important again, because uh, as soon as economic precarity kind of rears its head, like it did in 2008 and before that, even people start caring about Marx again. Right. right? So he's he's popular for a lot of reasons. Marx is popular again. Wolf Howell. <laughs> yeah, Wolf Howell, indeed. Um, <laughs> uh, I, just saying Wolf Howell, it's sort of, a, I feel like it should take the wind out of the sails, but actually it doesn't. It makes me ponder it a little bit more, so I appreciate that. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I think, too, it's just useful to articulate the fact that Marx and Marxists uh, did actually change the world and change history. Um, I mean, people can be upset about it if they want, and that's fair and fine, I guess. Um, but there's no denying that, like, uh, the kind of communism that, for example, Jose Miranda is talking about in the Bible, which is, like, very cool, um, still didn't end up creating communist societies in the same way that Marxism did. So paying attention to those strategies and analytic tools, I think um, it should at least give us pause to be like, all right, maybe there's something here. If you're sour, sour about Marx, uh, well, proof's in the pudding in a certain way. Yeah, I think so. Um, though... <laughs> That being said, uh, Eric Hausbaum does have okay. So it is true. Marx, uh, Marx, and like the sort of communist parties and um, other sort of iterations of uh, sort of Marxist thought in actually existing politics has made a huge impact everywhere. Uh, Hausbaum, for some reason, I don't know, probably something to be made of this, but uh, is really um, really only interested in for some reason the uh, Bolsheviks. Like that's kind of like his mm-hmm. big thing. There's a part even in the first few chapters where he says, uh, what is the relevance of Marx in the 21st century? The Soviet type model of socialism, the only attempt to build a socialist economy so far, no longer exists. On the other hand, there has been an enormous, uh, enormous and accelerating progress of globalization and so on. Whatever. I guess it just bugs me because like, um, that's true. The Soviet type model of socialism does not exist, but there's plenty of other sort of like actually existing socialism yeah. in the world that we should probably totally. think about. I mean, uh, it, it is, I think undeniable that the Soviet Union had a, like you know a huge impact on sort of the global scene but uh you know other countries are important yeah, too for sure uh no I think that's exactly right and it he really does a disservice I think throughout the whole book actually not um talking about lots of other communist struggles elsewhere it's really weird I mean he's a European historian so I guess in terms of expertise that makes sense uh but by virtue of being an actual communist person it doesn't make sense because <laughs> like you should know a little yeah. bit more about Cuba or like uh, Maoism in the Philippines or something than he lets on. Right. I, I mean, like, uh, you know, Soviet type model socialism made it was a big deal, um, but it's gone and Cuba's <laughs> still around. So maybe we should think about that for a second. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, uh, there's lots, lots of like complicated things happening, I think, throughout Hobbsbaum's analysis. And uh, as we go, I think that will be a theme that comes through is that like, all right. We're trying to make a case in this episode that you should care about Marx and Marxism. Um, But one thing that Hobbesbaum shows, even trying to prove that, is that Marx and Marxism are really uh, plural, like really multiple. And uh, it's not like, um, you know, it it isn't the case that you can just go to Marx and be like, oh, that's just what everyone should think, uh, like good Marxist fundamentalists. Uh, Yeah, that is definitely true. Dean, that is a very, uh, that is an extremely uh, heterodox uh, and very postmodern take on Marxism, (laughs) uh, but it's right. I don't know, Eric Hobsbawm said that that it's true, and he is anything but those those two things. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's fine. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody nobody tell anyone else that cares. (laughs) Yeah, we gotta shut this episode down. Um... (laughs) 
All right. Uh, but I will say, though, um, this essay, before we kind of move on to some other chapters, I think does have a, a really good point um, where he says, Hobbesholm writes, Marx himself deliberately abstained from specific statements about the economics and economic institutions of socialism and said nothing about the concrete shape of communist society except that it could not be constructed or programmed, but would evolve out of a social society. Uh, that's a pretty bold claim to make. Uh, I mean, he's really trying to drive home the fact that there's a real like eschatological force behind Marx. Uh, and that might come as a surprise for people who are familiar with the Marx of, say, like a book like Capital, which is just full of lots and lots of programmatic uh, ideas and things. Um, but I think that that's actually a good thing to kind of insist on that Marx does sort of open a window and there's lots of ways to look out of that window. Yeah. Um, I actually have a really hard time with this bit kind of for the reason you just said. Um, but okay. There's a thing I like about it. There's a thing I don't like about it so much. Um, and first of all, first of all, I'll say the thing I like <laughs> about it. What I like about, uh, Hobbesbaum's point here, um, I, I guess about Marx is that like the Marx that we get in terms of um, like actually existing so like Soviet model socialism is kind of different than the marks that we might read in the communist manifesto, right? It's like a specific interpretation of uh, Marx's work uh, elsewhere. And um, Hobbesbaum's point that like Marx doesn't write out a program for communism or something is kind of right, I guess, in a way in the sense that like he doesn't have like a five year plan or something. I have a hard time with it um, because uh, the communist manifesto does have some like programmatic elements in it. And I think that's a tension that he just like, doesn't really deal with at all. Um, So uh, in a later section, I guess I'll talk about this a bit more Uh, in a later section, Hobbesbaum goes on to say that like to take an obvious example, the communist party whose manifesto our text claimed to be had nothing to do with the parties of modern uh, democratic politics or the vanguard parties of Leninist communism. Uh, let alone the state parties of the Soviet and Chinese type. Uh, none of these yet have existed. Uh, that makes complete sense. And then Hasbaum even goes on to say, party still meant essentially a tendency or current of opinion or policy, although Marx and Engels recognized that once this found expression in class movements, it developed into some kind of organization. Uh, and then he continues to say, as the text made clear, Marx and Engels' Communist Party at this stage was no kind of organization, nor did it attempt to establish one, let alone an organization with a specific program distinct from other organizations. Incidentally, the actual body on whose behalf the manifesto was written, the Communist League, is nowhere mentioned in it. Okay, um, so the whole point here is uh, kind of okay, but has some, some difficulties, I think, or some tensions that we should probably talk about and draw out here with Hobsbawm. Um In one sense, like, it's true, like, um, when the the elaboration on like what the word party means is kind of like interesting and helpful like uh vanguard parties didn't exist lenin wasn't you know there <laughs> on the scene um but uh still in the manifesto there are actually like there's like 10 points that marx lays out that's kind of a programmatic sort of thing um so i find some of this kind of hard to hard to deal with like Marx lays out uh, 10 things he wants uh, he wants people to do sort of to move towards socialism. And they are uh, pretty programmatic things. They range from like, you know, really kind of abstract ideas or like ideas with no sort of like implementable plan, like the abolition of private property. He doesn't say how to. Uh, but then they get like way more specific when he talks about the centralization of credit. Um, 
and the centralization of the means of communication, he kind of gets like more uh, concrete as things go on. So I guess there's just kind of like a tension here in the way Hobbesbaum presents it and the way Marx writes it. Like, um, it's hard to know exactly what Marx thought about these things other than they should be done, but we don't necessarily know how. So it's kind of a weird, kind of a weird thing, kind of a weird document. Yeah, I, I think that you're right. Um, it, it's true that there are programmatic things in the communist manifesto uh i think the main thing that hopalom's trying to drive home is that there isn't uh there isn't a completely obvious um link between what's said in the manifesto for example and what happens in like the bolshevik revolution or in mao's china or something like that um like those kinds of programs aren't laid out in the manifesto uh exactly um it's clear that there's a link there it's not to say that you know Hobbesbaum is a Bolshevik. Like he's definitely not being like uh, these are disingenuous or like you know bad deformations or whatever. But I think he's just trying to suggest that uh, the manifesto itself and uh, what's happening in early kind of communist party movements uh, that Marx and Engels are part of isn't a, a straight line, and that there's there are a lot of points of radiation out from that. Um, I guess I sort of think this is a really good example of how. Again, like we said on the podcast before, uh, a lot of things that happen on the left mirror what happened in Christianity, right? So, you know, Christians have this kind of sacred text, and it says a lot of really definitive things. Um, and it also leaves a lot of wiggle room for a lot of other things, and that creates all kinds of arguments and disagreements uh, about strategy and about how a Christian movement should look and what it should think and all those sorts of things. And I think that Marxism... Uh, and Marxist communism is is a very good mirror of that. Uh, so you, so you get lots and lots of definitive statements. You know, it's not like completely and entirely open with no program. And it's true that Hobbesbaum is maybe playing a little too loose and fast there. Um, but I think there's a the point that there's just like a lot of room um, is is an important one to kind of insist on. Uh, yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, there is a lot of room. I mean, um, when Marx like right before Marx says those things in the manifesto, he says like these are the things that the most advanced <laughs> countries right. should do or something. So I guess, like, that's fine. That's a fine tension for me to live in. I don't mind that at all. I guess it just bugs me when it's like, well, there's no specific <laughs> program here. And, like, but there's yeah, 10 points. completely fair. So, true. so fine. But fine, I get it. <laughs> no, I think you're right, though. Okay, I mean, even though I'm annoyed and, like, fine. I don't know. I wouldn't be, like, a Marxist where I'm not annoyed by, like, really pedantic <laughs> things like this. Uh, but, like, it, it is kind of a cool and helpful thing to draw out, though, that, like, the Marxism of Lenin or the Marxism of like, I don't know, like a, a, autonomy mm-hmm. or whatever. Right. Like they are Marxisms that are drastically different in like some different takes and uh, different emphases on different parts of um, uh, the young Marx and the old Marx and yeah, yeah. else, you know, <laughs> so that's cool. I'm into that. <laughs> there, I mean, in a real important way, they are like hermeneutic projects, right? Like they are interpretive yeah. efforts um, that have to be made because you can't just hold up the Communist Manifesto uh, in Russia, you know, and be like, this is what we're doing right now in 1917. Like you've got to do a few other things if that's what you want to accomplish. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there are definitely parts of the manifesto that like, um, I don't know, probably wouldn't go over very well in 1917 in russia or something like for example 
uh, right after those 10 points about, like, what the most advanced countries should do, which, uh, I mean, of which, like, Russia in 1917 was, like, probably yeah. not one of them. Um, but, like, right after that part, uh, Marx has this whole kind of really weird thing about the state. Um, and basically what he says is, like, um, if the proletariat are able to sort of seize power, um, then, like, after a while, the state should just kind of wither away. And, like, that's, like, a really wild idea that you wouldn't usually kind of attribute to Marx in this sort of, like, Bolshevik sense. Like, you know, the um, in, in in the Soviet Union, like, the last thing the state did was wither away. Um, and that wasn't even, like, something that anyone would probably had prescribed. Um, but it's, like, it is definitely a hermeneutic project in the sense that, like, there are parts of Marx that will just go unread and, like, wouldn't have any kind of, like, feasible expression uh, in actually existing socialism somewhere. Yeah, um, at the very least, like what it would mean to have the state wither away uh, in the Soviet Union is going to look different, for example, probably than what Marx thought it should look like. And uh, yeah, there's absolutely. Like, nothing wrong with that. Like, it's fine. That's just part of the interpretive project. And that's OK. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, but I guess but just recognizing that there is an interpretive project seems like yeah, a big yeah. deal to me. Yes, exactly. Um, okay, well, let's, uh, let's maybe talk a little bit about, um, more of, like, the history that Marx himself is situated in, and Engels, I guess, uh, with respect to kind of pre-Marxian socialism, um, before we sort of start making the, the leap to talking maybe a little bit more about contemporary communism, um, so, like we've done in the, these kind of past episodes, we've been noting that, you know, Marx and Engels didn't invent communism, per se, and they don't you know, they don't even say that they did, right? They go out of their way to try to show that they think there's a long lineage that they're participating in. Um, so Hobsbawm says in a, in a chapter on this very sort of topic, at least on the like immediate predecessors of Marx and Engels, uh, that they were latecomers to communism um, historically. And I think that's really interesting because a lot of people associate Marx and Engels with, you know, the, the birth of communism or something like that. But there's actually a lot of other stuff going on there. Um, was there anything that specifically kind of jumped out at you there, Matt? Um, a lot. I mean, this is the part where there are the, you know, 30 different French and German <laughs> guys who Marx and Engels disagree with. Uh, there's a lot of other stuff, too, though, that's kind of interesting. Um, here, here's a passage from Hobsbawm that is interesting to us specifically. Uh, he says... Though some 18th century philosophers were engaged in modifying such traditions to fit with the new aspirations of liberal individual society, uh, philosophy carried with it from the past a strong heritage of com uh, communalism, or even in several cases the belief that a society without private property was in some sense more, quote, natural, or at any rate historically prior to one with private property. Um, and then he goes on to say the interesting thing, uh, which is, there was even more marked in Christian ideology. Nothing is easier than to see the Christ of the Sermon on the Mount as the first socialist or communist. And though the majority of early socialist theorists were not Christians, many later members of socialist movements have found this reflection useful. Ah, there you go. That's like what we've been saying this whole time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, there's so much going on there that's really useful, I think. Uh, and what's cool about what Hobsbawm is doing is he's he kind of does... Uh, um well he like gives something and then he kind of takes it away that's sort of his argumentative strategy i think in many of his essays and in this case what he gives is that yeah there were these precursors to communism and uh you know socialists have found ways to use that argumentatively um in a way that makes a lot of sense um people who listen to this podcast should find that pretty obvious uh 
But uh, what he he immediately kind of takes that away, I think, also, because he goes on to say that in many ways, trying to stress this link between uh, these early kind of pre-Marxian communists and uh, Marxist communism is problematic because the links are kind of forced in a certain way. Um, or at least it's like the like Marx and Engels and post-Marxist uh, communists are inventing ancestors for themselves. So like he says, uh, you know, communists tried to, to find all these different lineages in ancient Greeks or in Christians or in like certain Enlightenment theorists like Rousseau or others. Um, and Hobbesbaum says like that's kind of disingenuous, uh, but it does articulate a belief in progress at the heart of 19th century communism in general. Um, so what you kind of learn from Hobbesbaum's consideration of these uh, long strands is that while there are continuities in some ways, uh, there's also like really important discontinuities. And those are where the really interesting ha things, I think, start to happen is like what is sort of unique about Marxist communism. And that's where he starts arguing with all of the uh, French and German folks. Yeah, I think that's helpful. Um, helpful thing to do. Helpful way to sort of delineate Marx from the others. Yeah, I don't know, Dean, what were the most interesting things uh, that made Marx different from the other, like, uh, 19th century? Yeah, um, I mean, he, uh, so Marx goes out of his way to argue with a lot of them and articulate those differences. Uh, but I think that maybe two of the kind of more interesting things that I found, uh, one was just the historical conditions that Marx is writing out of. Um, so he's writing out of a situation where, a proletarian movement is becoming more and more self-conscious and self-aware. And that's something that just simply wasn't available to communists before that time. Uh, Cause there wasn't as developed of a proletariat before that. Um, so, you know, Marx is writing with like the French revolution uh, kind of in mind and uh, all kinds of other revolutionary energies where people are starting to think even harder about how to throw off feudalism than they already were. Um, so I think that's like a really important point, right? That, one reason that the proletariat is important to Marx is because they provide a, a revolutionary energy and they're analytically important, but they're also like around. <laughs> uh, so that's a really important mm -hmm. kind of point. Um, I think the second is just uh, trying to articulate what communism and socialism meant as just sort of descriptive rhetorical terms for Marx and for like Marx's social right. milieu. Uh, so there's this great line where he says, uh, Hobsbawm writes, unlike the word communist, which always signified a program, the word socialist was primarily analytical and critical. It was used to describe those who held a particular view of human nature, for example, the fundamental importance of sociability or the social, social instincts, uh, which implied a particular view of human society, or to describe those who believed in the possibility or necessity of a particular mode of social action. Um, so basically, uh, you know, the, these sound like really pedantic points and in some ways they are, but they're also really important because Marx sided with the communists, right? The ones who had a program, uh, over and against the socialists who were primarily analytical and critical, which is also kind of an interesting point since Marx is so analytical and critical himself. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's also kind of an interesting thing to think about too. Uh, I mean, like, uh, I think in the United States at this point in, uh, history like i said earlier 2018 the year of our lord uh i don't know why i keep saying that it just seems it's just like, relevant to differentiate it's just true what can i do like i think more people now would identify as a socialist than a communist which i think is kind of a bummer um but like the word socialist does not mean i guess what it used right. to even like 
uh, the word socialist was primarily an analytical or critical kind of viewpoint uh, does not seem to be the case anymore. Uh, socialists are people who like, I don't know, <laughs> like it's more of like a, a popular movement uh, that that like you know desires a certain set of political goals without much of an an like an analysis whereas people who identify as communists these days um seem more critical more analytical and uh also have programs so uh communists just seem better huh? yeah i think so i think you're right um (laughs) i mean it is crazy that like Okay, so it's good that people think that socialism is a good word now. Yeah, um, for sure. But the the rapid uptake of that very word has, I think, uh, importantly kind of watered down a lot of the analytical and critical sides of what it would mean to be a socialism, right? Like, people are arguing about, like, what's democratic socialism? What does it mean to be a democratic socialist, for example? Uh, you have people like Bernie Sanders, who is, like, a critical guy in some ways, but in other ways, like, completely not critical. Yeah. Like uh really really bad at talking about american foreign policy like for some reason wants to like extradite asada shakur from cuba like not the kind of thing that you would do if you were an analytical and critical uh socialist i don't think yeah Uh, at least one that kind of deserves those terms yeah exactly so that's wild (laughs) like i don't know i don't want to be like i don't want to be overly mean to like people in, in within like the sort of democratic socialist discourse but uh it's a thing that people are working out still i guess yeah and it's not to say there aren't people who are democratic socialists who are like smart yeah there are plenty of them um but like just denoting sort of movements or whatever um it is kind of funny that there's a there's a historical switch here in some ways i don't really know the details of that but i don't know that's a good insight anyway yeah i think so weird weird thing it is weird um all right so we've got a little bit on the table about like marx's historical context and uh what's going on there and you can read if you really want to know all the uh scholastic debates uh that he has with all kinds of people that i don't know aren't that relevant to my brain um but i think that is a good way to maybe transition into some of the kind of specifically marxist theories of like strategy and uh maybe specifically we could talk a bit about the state because i think that like um i don't know that's a thing that obviously comes up a lot with marxists and marxism what do you do about the state what's a marxist state look like uh even like when we had our first episode with uh catherine from friendly anarchism that was like the sticking point right um like we can be nice to each other for a long time but like eventually we got to talk about the state um so let's do a little bit of that there's a great chapter i think probably my favorite one of the ones we read called marx angles and politics and uh it kind of just discusses what marx and Engels thought about political strategy in relationship to the situation on the ground that they were part of um so yeah i don't know matt any uh hot takes um about the uh marxist theory of the state from uh the reading or um just your general marxist disposition <laughs> yeah for sure uh there's a lot of kind of interesting things going on uh with this like the state and uh the dictatorship of the proletariat um <laughs> great great term that for some reason just doesn't go over very well these days uh, uh, anyways, uh, one part that kind of sticks out to me is this quote. I'll just read it here. Uh, Hobbesbaum says this. The early communist form of Marxist theory of the state sketched out four main points. The essence of the state was political power, which was the official expression of the opposition of classes within bourgeois society. It would con- it would consequently cease to exist in communist society. 
Uh, in the present system, it represented not a general interest of society, but the interest of the ruling ca- classes, both a revolutionary victory of the proletariat. It would, during the expected transition period, not disappear immediately, but take uh, but take the temporary form of the proletariat organized as ruling class or the dictatorship of the proletariat. Okay, so there's like a bunch of different options uh, from the... Um, from Marxist theory about the state, there's a lot of different, uh, different ones going on. I just mentioned a few minutes ago, the withering state and in, uh, in this, these four options, that's definitely one of them. Uh, but it gives you a few different ideas of ways Marx thought about it. Um, so, but I think they're, they're not four options per se, so much as four kind of interconnected points, which yeah. I think is a really interesting way of looking at it. Yeah. We'll say more about that then, Dean. So, right. The essence of the state is political power, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that is true uh for marx um but it would uh so he says it would cease to exist in a communist society um so those are like some important kind of issues right because on the one hand he wants to say that it's political power and that's also why he thinks that you need one right like you have to take that political power in order to shift to a different kind of social situation um but once you're in a different social situation hopefully that political power can uh, go away because you don't need it to ward off the possibilities of uh the ruling class of the proletariat being kind of re-dethroned i guess or dethroned after its own revolution by the bourgeoisie uh so in that sense like I think it's important to recognize that Marx thinks that the state is necessary for certain purposes uh, and that there are certain qualities that the state has that are available to it strategically uh, that make sense in certain times and then hopefully wouldn't need to be present in other times. Yeah, no, totally. That's right. So the the essence of the state was political power. And what that like the way that shakes out is just like um, the sort of historical situation kind of denotes the way that that like state power has to be used right right so i mean i I guess like the kind of cool thing about marx is that like whenever you don't know the answer to like how something will actually look you say well depends on the historical conditions and uh, (laughs) same thing here um i think too that when we talk about the state especially with marx we always have to talk about the paris commune and uh what i think the character of that meant for what it means to talk about the dictatorship of the proletariat um, so there's a really interesting kind of block quote that I'll read here, uh, where Hobsbawm articulates some, I think, like important reminders. So he says, as is well known, the experience of the Paris Commune suggested important amplifications to Marx's and Engels' thoughts on the state and the proletarian dictatorship. The old state machinery could not be simply taken over, but had to be eliminated. Marx here seems to have thought primarily of Napoleon III's centralized bureaucracy as well as army and police. The working class had to secure itself against its own representatives and officials in order to avoid the transformation of the state and state organs from servants of society into its masters, as had happened in all previous states. Though this change has been interpreted in subsequent Marxist discussion chiefly as the need to safeguard the revolution against the dangers of the surviving old state machinery, the danger envisaged applies to any state machinery which is allowed to establish autonomous authority, including that of the revolution itself. The resulting system discussed by Marx in connection with the Paris Commune has been the subject of intensive debate ever since. Little about it is unambiguously clear, except that it is to consist of responsible elected servants of society and not of a corporation standing above society. So I think that that helps to do away with a lot of some of the caricatures that some people worry about with respect to Marxist theories of the state, uh, and also some 
uh, I don't know the right adjective, but maybe like adolescent or kind of immature defenses of the state, uh, just for the sake of like defending the state that you sometimes get among communists. Yeah. Um, like it's just important to realize that like the state isn't just good because it's the state <laughs> and there are like lots of ways that the state should and should not look, uh, that Marx and Engels both kind of thought about. Yeah, exactly. I think that's good. Um, it actually, uh, I'll say more about the Paris commune in one second, but it does kind of remind me of this thing Foucault said once about prisons. Um, I think we've said this in the show before, but who knows? Uh, <laughs> there's this like pretty cool interview in a book. I don't know with Foucault. And, um, <laughs> Uh, there's like this interviewer who's like, um, well, like what should prisoners do? Like, should they take over a prison? And he's like, yeah, they should totally take over a prison. And then he's, uh, he's like, but you know, a prison's like great, but like, uh, they should also like take it apart after they take it over. Um, and I think you can interpret that in like a really sort of like anarchist way. And that's fine. Do that. Uh, that's a good hermeneutic <laughs> project. Why not? Uh, but there's also something kind of Marxist about it too, in the same way, where it's like um, mm-hmm. you see, you see, sort of like the state apparatus, and now you have to figure out what to do with it. So, like, don't let it, you know, don't let the sort of like old form, for whatever reason, creep back up. Um, yeah. More, more on that. Uh, I guess the. Uh, anyways, getting back to the phrase, the dictatorship of the proletariat, um, and like what that means. I guess it's like a really scary word because uh, dictatorships in it, and um, you know that's like one of those. Uh, one of those ways that like anti-communist forces really capitalize on that rhetoric to kind of turn it against Marxists um, and communists in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, there's another kind of interesting note from Hobbesbaum that says uh, the only regime actually described by Marx as a dictatorship of the proletariat was the Paris Commune. So think about that for a second. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that gives a little bit of, like a little bit more like uh, texture to like what that word might mean. Um, a dictatorship is probably not the first kind of thing that one might associate with the Paris Commune. <laughs> um, right. But uh, it kind of tells you a little bit more about like what he thinks about that uh, kind of idea. Uh, later in that same kind of passage, he says, an army of the proletariat was the precondition of its dictatorship. So there's a lot of ideas uh, kind of going on there in terms of like, mm, like self-determination of people um, and the organization of proletarians in a particular order um against capital huh right yeah and i think it's funny too in that same kind of general uh passage uh Hobsbawm draws out that the political characteristics of the paris commune that marx emphasized were the opposite of dictatorial in the literal sense um he says Engels cited both the democratic republic as its specific political form uh, and the paris commune however since neither marx nor Engels set out to construct a universally applicable model of the form of the dictatorship of the proletariat or predict all situations in which it might be enforced, we can conclude no more from their observations than it ought to combine the democratic transformation of the political life of the masses with measures to prevent counter-revolution by the defeated ruling class. I think that is just kind of a also like important thing to keep in mind, the like dictatorship of the proletariat. Uh, the specific qualities that they do kind of pull out aren't the kind of things that we associate it with like dictatorships today, I guess, just as like a common rhetorical term. Yeah. Well, I mean, since like, okay, so if the state is political power, um, then like what it means to have a dictatorship of the proletariat is, is that proletarians are the people who can exercise political power. Right. And like, you know, that doesn't mean bad. <laughs> it doesn't mean that that's like in a bad way. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't mean bad. <laughs> it could be good, even. Yeah, it doesn't mean bad. It does mean good. Yeah. 
<laughs> All right. Um, maybe we can start kind of rounding this around uh, by talking about the Communist Manifesto um, essay, the one that you uh, both like and don't like. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think uh, probably one of my favorite um, observations that Hobsbawm makes about the historical situation that the manifesto is part of is that uh, the rhetorical force of the document outlives like the usefulness of it. Um, I think that's actually very funny. So like Marx and Engels write it and they write it, you know, for the communist league or whatever. And then they release it out into the world. And like, I think the common assumption is like, yeah. And then like people got it and they got hold of it and it like changed everything, but actually like it didn't really get like picked up very quickly. And then by the time it did, it like started really going around the world and like getting translated and getting used. Uh, Marx and Engels like noted several times in its republication that it just kind of got like outdated uh but they couldn't i mean you can't put the genie back in the bottle like they said what they said and uh there it is and i think that's so kind of fascinating that uh there's a there's a real like um i don't know like force behind the writing that outlives even the uh um hopes or aspirations of the people who wrote it dean there you go getting all postmodern again there dude that's uh i think (laughs) the death of the author right there actually (laughs) that's right uh what can i say uh i've been educated by druidians it's just how it is i mean it's also good like whatever um (laughs) i'm i don't know i don't have any problem with postmodernism just making just making a joke for the podcast um yeah it's it is like really funny um i mean just think about how many jokes on twitter today you've seen about like specters haunting europe or whatever it's the i made one like two days ago (laughs) the rhetoric is too good it's like it's too good um that was their problem they wrote something that was too good um that's my (laughs) official stance on the communist manifesto is that it's the best and um it's too good for everyone else um yeah that's true i mean like i the first time i ever read it i was you know in college or whatever and i like immediately loved it it's like such a cool piece um rhetorically it's super strong and uh hobsbawm at one point says it has an almost biblical force and like yeah it's very good (laughs) if you read it all the way through you should feel kind of convicted and like like let's break let's break these chains let's uh let's get at it let's centralize that credit um i'd love to (laughs) (laughs) yeah all those uh all those people who are really interested in uh banking practices just get really fired up by it for sure this guy he says centralize the credit what (laughs) that was my first response uh, this this manifesto has got some good ideas (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah uh i think that's right um Let's talk a little bit about what is in the manifesto. Uh, I don't know. Maybe someday we should actually do an uh, episode on the manifesto itself. But let's um, try to avoid that a little bit by uh, maybe just pulling out a couple things Hobsbawm says about how the manifesto gets like misinterpreted and what he sort of keys in on. Um, I don't know. Anything that really stuck out to you in that chapter? Yeah. Uh, one thing that Hobsbawm says that's kind of interesting uh, about sort of misinterpretations uh, is this he says contrary to widespread assumptions inasmuch as it believes that historical change proceeds through humans making their own history the manifesto is not a determinist document the graves have to be dug by or through human action yeah so some people read uh read the communist manifesto some people kind of interpret Marx in that weird lens where like this is just the thing that happens next like it um i, I mean like sometimes you'll hear people say that like um capitalism sort of sows its own 
seeds of revolution or whatever. I don't know how the phrase actually goes. But you hear people say that kind of stuff that, like, you know, it's uh, capitalism creates the conditions of its own overthrow, which is true, but not in like sort of a mechanic way, uh, but in the sense that it actually makes the lives of people very bad and um, the lives of those people have agency and they can, like, do things to, you know, make capitalism <laughs> go away. Anyways, <laughs> really eloquent over here tonight. Um, but anyways, uh, yeah, so it's uh, Hobsbawm's note that it's not a determinist document is... Uh, is one that's good because people get kind of confused about that sometimes. Yeah, I think that's good too. Um, like the proletariat is a force that's brought into being by capitalism for sure. Uh, but you have to organize it to make it take power. Um, like, I don't think Marx and Engels assume that, you know, the proletariat is just going to like, uh, like everybody's going to wake up and then look around and be like, wow, our lives really are kind of bad. Actually. That's why we ought to be communists. <laughs> like, Clearly, that is not how it works and not how it has worked. Um, you have to, like, really help people kind of learn how to advocate for themselves, advocate for each other. Um, and that is the, the challenge, I think, of, uh, you know, digging the grave for capitalism, <laughs> like becoming the grave diggers, not just assuming that, like, um, they're all going to pop up and kind of, I don't know, uh, inevitably, like, change the system or something yeah that's a really helpful articulation of it i think okay so like it capitalism does sort of like proletarianize a workforce right like that's a thing that happens like they own for sure they, they come to own nothing but their labor and that's all they can sell and so on and pro, like the proletariat is sort of like formed as a class uh but that's like the proletariat being formed as a class is like different than that class being organized against capitalism or like that class right. actually just being communist or something right like um I remember uh, Richard Kilmapolsky, uh, my dude, my second favorite person next to Marx. Um, he, like, one time he said, like, you know, the point of being a communist is that, like, you can kind of, like, uh, like, at some kind of crucial point in history, you could, like, nudge people in the right direction, right? And that nudging is important because mm -hmm. people have agency. People, like, the masses can do things. Um, and you got to get them to do to do those things, to help you and you help them, to, to, get, to get capitalists. To get capitalism in the ground, in the in the grave. <laughs> also, why you should go see. Uh, sorry to bother you. Oh uh, yeah. <clears throat> well, I know uh, we're kind of like rounding out to the end here. I don't know. This is sort of a meandering conversation, but it's, hopefully it's good. Uh, I do though want to give you a chance, Matt, to uh, raise this uh, this grievance that you have with this chapter um, at the end of it. Uh yeah, uh, I've got nothing but grievances. Uh, like I said, that's kind of the point. <laughs> uh yeah. So um, I mentioned a few bad takes that Hobbsbaum has. Um, and here's one more. So at the very end of the section about the Communist Manifesto, he says this thing that I don't like. The commitment to politics is what historically distinguished Marxian socialism for the an from the anarchists and from the successors of those socialists whose rejection of all political action the manifesto specifically condemns. Um, even before Lenin, Marxian theory was not just about what history shows us will happen, but also about what must be done. Um, so that's true, I think. Like, well, okay, hang on. No, let me qualify that. It is true <laughs> that Marxism is a is a political philosophy about action. Like the point is not to you know describe the world but change it. That's that's the that's the thing that Marx is all about, right? Uh, but I think it's mm -hmm. like disingenuous to say that like that's what historically distinguished Marxian socialism from anarchists or from other like socialists. Like that can't be true. <laughs> yeah, especially if like what we just said. 
especially if Marxists take that we just covered about the Paris Commune is true. Like they were not Marxists, or like, like that's not how that worked. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Exactly. So, like, it is probably it is true that like Marxism is a political philosophy about action, about doing things, and like that's totally true. But it's kind of a problem to just say that um, no one else did things because that's dumb. That's a bad take. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, no doubt about that. It's also just a sort of irrelevant, like, sectarian point, which is somewhat ironic because Hobbesbaum goes out of his way to talk about how Marx was uh, pretty intentionally non-sectarian um, and, like, advocated communists not throwing stones, but just, like, trying to embed themselves in a number of different movements because they could be good. Yeah. So, uh, on this point, uh, either Hobbesbaum has a bad take or we're just misunderstanding what he's talking about. You never know. Yeah, could be. <laughs> you never you never really do know. Um, all right, so let's wrap up uh, a little bit. Um, what did we learn about communism from Marx that we don't get from pre-Marxist communist Christians that we talked about? Uh, I think there's a lot of stuff we didn't talk about on this episode. Like, okay, Marx has a lot of specific ideas about what capitalism is, what it does, how it operates, all that kind of stuff. And that's an important conversation to have. Um, but apart from that, Matt, uh, what do you think, sort of based on some of these political uh, ideas we get from Marx in particular? Uh, I think the most important idea that we get from Marx in particular that we maybe don't get as much from the other folks we've talked about in the past weeks is that, like, uh, organizing people is important. <laughs> that seems like a dumb thing to even yeah. have to draw out, but, like, but actually, no, it's true. Yeah. No, I think that's right. It's not the kind of thing that you get with, like, a communism of consumption. Um, like, you you would organize within your community, but it's not really, uh, I don't know, it's not about, like, going out into the world and, like, organizing everybody else, necessarily. Maybe, like, Mutzer or, like, the Diggers have something like that in there, but not, not nearly the same. Yeah, not nearly the same, because, like, um, I mean, the Diggers, okay, let's take them as an example for a second. They organize people for sure. Their organization was like, hey, see that hill out there? We're going to go plant stuff on it. <laughs> and then uh, everyone else surrounding them was like, okay, and we're going to send soldiers to beat you up or something. So I guess, like, organizing people is important, um, and organizing people uh, in the form of the state is also pretty important, too. <laughs> something that's kind of missing from the, <laughs> yeah, communism of consumption yeah. or maybe some of the radical Christians right. we've talked about that they just, like, don't ever kind of go that far. I think maybe Munzer could potentially have gone that far. Um yeah. The, you do get you do get this sort of uh, sense that like uh, he was going to institute like a weird peasants commune, <laughs> not unlike the Paris commune, um, but obviously like that didn't pan out because he died. Um, and also, I think that like the the insistence on a kind of theological bent is fine, um, but it does preclude you from some like important questions and strategies like. Uh, the materialism that's present in Marxism is actually really helpful. Like people should focus on the fact that like some people have a lot of stuff and other people don't have a lot of stuff, not necessarily just cause like the Bible thinks that that's bad or something, but because like it is demonstrably bad when you just like look around you, uh, like you shouldn't really need like a theological justification to be upset about that. Like if you have one, that's fine, I guess. Um, but also, I don't know, like, you can be an atheist and be pissed off that like some people die and Jeff Bezos wants to go to space. I don't know. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's good that um, within, 
I mean, within the Bible, within Christian tradition, we have people that say material goods are, you know, disproportionately allocated to people. Um, yeah. But that doesn't go quite far enough. Like, you know, um, it doesn't go quite far enough because we have, like, in Christianity, weird conversations about it still. Like, oh, well, uh, the rich young ruler not being able to enter heaven actually doesn't have anything to do with how much wealth he has. It actually has to do with the way he can't humble himself before God or, you know, like, whatever, right? right. So it's like we Christians miss the point, um, and the materialist analysis uh, means that you don't miss the point. Yep, I think so. Uh, and I think also maybe one kind of takeaway, at least from the Hobbesbaum stuff for me, is uh, something that Marx can help Christians think about is uh, like really boring problems like the state or the proletariat or like how do you recognize the situation around you? Um, those are just things that Christians, I think, are not great at thinking about, in part because they have reasons to be like anxious about it. Um, like it's not accidental that a lot of Christians are attracted to anarchism, for example, and not attracted to Marxism yeah. when they start having kind of like an anti-capitalist awakening. I mean, that was my own situation. Yeah, ex- and, exactly. Uh, um, yeah. So it's just good to have those kinds of analyses that you get from Marx. Yeah. Because otherwise you end up being a Christian anarchist who like, um, thinks the state is absolutely bad because it's coercive. But like, you know, you also think that like, um, well, like Jacques Lula, like no one should come vaccinate your cows right <laughs> those cows they always need vaccinating <laughs> the thing about cows um, you know <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah um i think that uh thinking about the the marxist cow farmer is really the next horizon for a uh, christian leftists at this point Okay, so if you're playing the Magnificast home game, these are the things that you should learn from Marx. That you're not going to learn from other people. Organizing people is important. You got to have an you got to have an analysis of capitalism and its actual production. You have to think about boring problems like the state and central banking and the proletariat. Materialism <laughs> is actually good. Uh, and then the last one is Marx gives us good questions. So um, Miranda, uh, Jose Miranda, like we talked about uh, last week is kind of an interesting guy. He kind of points out some really good things about the Bible and about communism in the Bible and capitalism in the Bible. There isn't capitalism in the Bible, but there is communism. Gotta think about it. Um, and, uh, okay, so he says, uh, kind of turning back to the beginning of the episode, he says, uh, for a Christian to say that he or she is anti-Marxist is understandable, uh, but to be anti-communist is quite a different matter. And I think that is true, right? For a Christian to say that he or she is anti-Marxist, I get it. Like, I get why yeah. um, Marx might make Christians kind of, like, feel weird. It's a bad brand. A bad brand. Um, but if you actually read Marx, um, he's good. Wolf Howl. <laughs> yeah, Wolf Howl. Wolf Howl indeed. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard on this episode... And, you know, you did. Uh, you can uh, give us some money on Patreon, patreon.com slash TheMagnificast. You can also follow us on uh, Twitter, twitter.com slash TheMagnificast, at TheMagnificast. I don't know how Twitter works. Um, we also have a cool Facebook group called The Magnificast Basement. You can join it and see the articles that people post about fun and interesting things. Lots of good stuff going on there. Um, cool. We're also on two podcast networks that I just remembered that we haven't really posted to in a while. Probably got to fix that. Um, <laughs> called uh, the networks are called Theology Corner and Critical Mediations, and they're both extremely good with all kinds of other good podcasts, like Friendly Anarchism, uh, Revolutionary Left Radio, Delete Your Account. I don't know, lots of other good people doing good stuff. Uh, listen to them all.
Uh, yep, cool. So uh, music is also done by Amari Armstrong, and the outro music is done by The Logical Spoon. Cool. See you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up.